Well, hello everybody and welcome to the Reading Materials podcast. I am Corrie. And I'm Lucia. And we are two friends who pick a book or a series of books, read it and then discuss it on the show. Yes, indeed. So how have you been? No, I've been better. I've, I'm having some mental health moments and I've I've got some time off work. I mostly just say that to be transparent and let everybody know that mental health stuff is normal. I'm seeing a therapist, I'm on medication, and hopefully things will be back to normal soon. We have been a month in recording this because basically every time we've gone to record I've been like, "Mm, not today, so I'm doing pretty good today and therefore we are recording. (laughs) Glad to hear you're feeling good today. Yeah, thanks. How are you doing? I'm alright. The biggest thing that's happened in my life since we last spoke is that my contract finished, so I'm also at home right Mm. now and just reading and reading and reading. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's about it. Otherwise, I'm fine. I'm super pleased for you that you're, you know, that you've... I I feel like if you'd... If your contract had run out this time last year, uh, just in terms of, you know... Assuming life is exactly the same as it is now and it's last year, mm. except that we don't have the podcast, I think you would have been a lot more like, oh, this is awful. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. Anyway, moving on rapidly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we talk books? Let's talk books. So what did we read this time? We read this time. I'm going to make sure I get the title of this absolutely correct. Invisible Woman, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. And I shall read... I'm going to go for the Goodreads summary today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Data is fundamental to the modern world. From economic development, to healthcare, to education and public policy, we rely on numbers to allocate resources and to make crucial decisions. But because so much data fails to take into account gender, because it treats men as the default and women as atypical, bias and discrimination are baked into our systems. And women pay tremendous costs for this bias, in time, money, and often with their lives. Celebrated feminist advocate Caroline Criado Perez investigates the shocking root cause of gender inequality and research in Invisible Woman, diving into women's lives at home, the workplace, the public square, the doctor's office, and more. Built on hundreds of studies in the US, the UK, and around the world, and written with energy, wit, and sparkling intelligence, this is a groundbreaking, unforgettable expose that will change the way you look at the world. So it's a non-fiction book. Mm-hmm. I chose it basically because one of my science friends from Imperial recommended it to me and he was a man and I thought the fact that he was giving it a really high recommendation probably meant it was a pretty good thing to read and here we are. Mm -hmm. Yes indeed, here we are. (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) So should we do a rating first? Uh, Yes, we can do a rating. I think one thing I just want to say before we fully jump Mm -hmm. in is that we had originally hoped to get a male point of view on this book. We had reached out to our male friends and asked if they would be interested to read it along with us and let us know 
what they think so that we wouldn't be completely biased because I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of feminist rage when we were reading this. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't have time to finish it. Mm. So we don't have his thoughts. Yeah, and I think it's also, we asked a number of men to do it and the reason they haven't committed to it is not because they're men and this is a feminist book it is just because of time and we didn't give them too much notice so yeah it says nothing about our male part uh not partners just uh what's the word i'm looking for peers yes absolutely definitely 100% <laughs> yes and i'd forgotten before we go to ratings let's just have a brief talk about the author mm-hmm so she, Caroline Criado Perez, was born in Brazil to a Brazilian father, I believe, and an English mother, spent some time living around the world, went to a British boarding school, age 11, and I think is now identified as a British person. I'm not sure whether she identifies as British. I don't think it necessarily matters. She studied English language and literature at Oxford University as a mature student, and then went on to study behavioural and feminist economics at LSE, the London School of Economics. She has got an OBE, which she got for services to equality in 2015, and has run a number of campaigns, which many people will be familiar with in the UK, where um, the Bank of England announced that they were going to remove the only woman who was featured on their banknotes, apart from the Queen, who was on every banknote. They were going to replace her with a man, and uh, Perez campaigned to get a woman back onto the Bank of England banknotes. The discussion of that campaign in the book is really interesting, and we ended up with Jane Austen on the £10 note, I think. And then the reason we have a report abuse button on Twitter is also because of her, because following that campaign, she got so much abuse on Twitter that they had to come up with a way to allow for you to report other users. And then there's also a statue of a woman in Parliament Square, the first statue of a woman in Parliament Square, which is her most recent non-literature or non-written accomplishment and... I don't know too much about that, but it is a big achievement. Mm -hmm. And this book in particular won the Science Book Prize in 2019. I think that is a relatively concise summary. Do you have anything to add at all? No, I, I hadn't actually looked her up. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, and she is she was born in 1984. Wikipedia mm. isn't entirely sure when, so she's a little bit older than us, but not much. Cool. I would also at this point like to say I have a dog in the room and he is not settling. So if anybody hears weird noises in the background, it's very likely to be the pupper <laughs> doing his thing. <laughs> okay, so then star ratings. Go ahead. Hit me. So I am probably on a 3.5. Mm -hmm. It was a 3. And then I read some reviews on Goodreads and... I had a bit of time to digest it because I finished the book last week and have since upgraded it to a 3.5. I gave it four mm -hmm. and I'm going to keep it there, I think. Definitely mm -hmm. not a five in my book. I think it's a very important topic and for that reason alone, I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I really, 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 really wanted to like it more than I did. Mm -hmm. I think it was let down by the writing style I think I didn't know that she had studied English language and literature at university 
because I sort of assumed she would have come from a science background. Mm-hmm. And as a scientist, I can tell that she has not done a lot in terms of science communication. Okay. And I guess by that I mean that it's a really, really fact-heavy book and it sort of swung from being really quite emotive at times with, a, I would say, biased point of view in terms of the facts that were being presented mm-hmm. to being so fact-heavy that it was almost unreadable. I would agree with that completely. I think I read this in two, maximum three days. Yeah. And by the end, I think I got a little bit desensitized to all the numbers. I much preferred those sections where she used real life examples, real women who had gone through something. Um, But when it was just numbers, when it was just percentages, it started to lose a little bit of meaning, especially by the end, like the last three or four chapters was just a complete number dump. Yeah. Yeah. And especially because that was the chapter about those were the chapters about politics and and natural disasters and stuff like that and it was a little bit by that point like oh you you either should have stuck this at the beginning or found a better way (laughs) to present the data yeah so I also I started to read the book and then just because of my mental health situation at the moment I'm finding it really difficult to concentrate on stuff in front of me so I decided to buy the audiobook Mm-hmm. and listen to the audiobook while I was walking the dog, mostly. And she narrates the audiobook, and it didn't improve the experience for me because it comes across as a really almost, to me, hysterical woman, you know, sort of just... She is so emotional about it, obviously, because it's something that matters so much to her and it's such an important issue, but... I really wanted it to be a book that I could give to the male, the males around me who I know are slightly less than open to some of these issues and say, here you go, you need to read this because it's a really good, well-rounded thing. And I don't feel that I would be able to do that because they would just say, well, this is just feminist propaganda. And the audiobook definitely exaggerated that. Yeah, that's a tough one. For the most part... I thought that she was quite good at taking a step back and letting the numbers tell the story. Uh, So I appreciated that most of her kind of personal opinion on these issues were kind of left to the last page of each chapter. But I think think it's better suited if this is read as a written text rather than listened to. Yes, I, yeah, I completely agree. Because obviously when you're, when you're listening to that number of numbers it's really easy to zone out and then all you hear are those bits so you know I think I probably when I'm feeling a bit better will read it again I I am intending to pass it around my family members but I'm not going to do what I normally do and just share the same copy with all of them I think I'm going to buy another copy Mm -hmm. because I know that so far all I've said is the negative stuff because I kind of want to get it out the way but the rest of it I think the I think it is just and it's an incredible reference piece for such a wide range of issues that are just completely unknown, mm. even to women. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I was I was really surprised at the number of things that she referred to. Um, some of them were, you know, I would say relatively minor annoyances that mm. we kind of have to deal with 
mm-hmm. day to day. Others were really uh, horrible, and they definitely made me feel emotional. I got yeah. very frustrated to the point of crying at one point during the book, and I kind of ranted at Andreas about all these things. So yeah, yeah I think it's a it's a really important piece of text. I'm glad it was written. I'm glad I read it. But yeah, it wasn't perfect. Definitely wasn't perfect. I think there's one more bit of criticism that I want to make about it mm-hmm. that I think is a really big deal mm-hmm. before we can start maybe di- diving more deeply into it, which is that A, she used the word z- sex and gender interchangeably, which they aren't, because sex is your biological characteristics and gender is how you identify. And the issue of transgender people was completely ignored. And whilst I understand that we're already tackling the 50% of the traditionally accepted population being part of an invisible data set, there was no reference to anything to do with the fact that there are also people who do not fit within our gender norms, and I don't think in this day and age you can do that. So even if she just put in her introduction or something along the lines of, I recognise that I'm only referring to the male and female sexes, this is not because of X, Y, Z, but it, I was thinking about it before I'd even checked any of the reviews or anything on Goodreads, and... It has alienated a lot of people because... And people who are not transgender, who don't fit within that bracket, but just within the... In the interests of inclusivity and all of that sort of... I don't want to brush it off, but I don't know Mm. what words to use Mm -hmm. here. But, you know, that realm of the world as it is at the moment, it's such an important issue that you just... You can't just not even make reference to it in a book that was published... Okay, it was two years ago, but it was still, a, it was already a big issue two years ago. Yeah. So that's, those are sort of my negative points, I think. Yeah, I think one of the other things that I had seen mentioned on Goodreads is also that, not exclusively, but the majority of the time she does refer to white women. She yeah. also kind of brushes over the fact that, you know, uh, for people of color, these statistics are probably even well, not probably, but definitely even worse than they are for people like you and me. Yeah, she sort of makes more of a reference to it later on mm-hmm. in the book, in the last section, which is about the New Orleans mm-hmm. um, hurricane disaster. But yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Will and I were actually talking about, you know, I was saying that I'm quite happy to sit here from a position of privilege. I'm a, you know, high earner relative to most people in the, or the, the average um, salary in the UK and so I'm it's quite easy for me to sit here and go well I didn't agree with xyz and we will come on to that in a bit whereas I am in a fortunate enough position to be able to employ a cleaner and if I asked her for her opinions on some of the things we would just get such a completely different viewpoint mm. and we can't ignore the fact that the author went to a private school, went to Oxford University. You know, she is clearly from, if not upper class, a middle class background. And therefore that privilege definitely does come through in some ways. Yes. But I think in her defence, you can't you can't write a book about every single data gap 
she's very clearly picked her topic and stuck to it. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. I mean, I suppose such a book could be written, but... It would be even more inaccessible, to be honest. Exactly, exactly. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so I don't really know how you want to proceed. Um, I was kind of taking notes as I was reading, so... Yep. We could just go at it chapter by chapter if you want. Yeah, sounds good. So maybe I can start with, already in the introduction, even before we get really into the book, some of the things that she starts talking about. Uh, One of my favorite bits, or one of the things that I really kind of stopped and thought, really, are we still doing this? Was when she was talking about the Viking bones. So this is basically an anecdote or a story about how some bones were found to be from the Viking era. They were buried with uh, weapons of some sort, and therefore the male um, scientists and archaeologists who had made this discovery had immediately attributed these bones to be of men. Mm -hmm. Even though the pelvis and the pelvic bone clearly indicated that this these bones had belonged to a woman, they thought, well, this must have just been some kind of biological anomaly. And once they actually did some DNA sequencing on these things, they found out that they were, in fact, female warriors who had been Mm. buried. (laughs) Mm. I just thought, oh my god. Yeah, but even then they were like, yes, but these can't possibly be their weapons. They must be the men's weapons. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. There was always some excuse for, okay, fine, so we were proven wrong, they're women, but... Not, you know, yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing that the introduction had that was really good was was the whole... She sort of started out with Man the Hunter and Mm -hmm. set out how it is that over our history we have come to where we are today because, because of various ways in which our cultures developed such that that data gap exists right from the beginning. I think there was another thing in the in the introduction where she was talking about cave paintings and how they were of men hunting and therefore they've always assumed that these were written by the men you know they were painted by the men but actually it was pro- it's more likely that it was females who did the paintings because they were the ones who were at home and had the time to do it and the fact that they recorded the men going off and doing stuff is sort of, you know, it starts right then. It starts where 50% of what is being recorded is... No, 100% of what is being recorded is 50% of what is going on. Yeah. Yeah. And then it sort of laid out how that's progressed throughout history. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that you found interesting from the introduction that you want to... I'll be really honest with you. I'm not 100% sure I can remember it. I sort of... Thought about it in terms of the parts, and for some reason I couldn't. I didn't look at the introduction that much, but the uh, the introduction was all about the default male, wasn't it? So the 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 idea that per is throughout the book is that the default male, if you think of human in most situations, what we have done is defaulted to a male position. So, for example, I think she used the example of children drawing doctors. And at, at below a certain age, they 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 draw doctors who are man and woman, and then 
it hits a certain point and all the doctors start being drawn as men. Mm-hmm. And similar to, you know, why is the iPhone the size that it is? And it sort of sets all of that up. And I was, I was simultaneously reading slash listening to this along with the new S.J. Bennett book, which is about Queen Elizabeth solving crime. Um, it's completely ridiculous and absolutely fantastic. And <laughs> the new book came out last week, which is why I was listening to them both at the same time, because I was like, I can't wait to listen to this. <laughs> and um, it was all about a woman painter who had her, you know, her stuff had been lost because she was a woman and women just were not accepted as painters until very recently and Perez touched on that Mm. in terms of music you know saying that women were allowed to sing silly little songs and that was about it anything orchestral was completely rejected like music was a man's game and as a woman who for the majority of my life music as in playing an instrument, has been a very big part of what I do on a day-to-day basis. That really struck a nerve. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah, the I think the introduction was the bit that had the least numbers, and yeah. it was almost the most interesting one. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. So I picked up on the, similar to what you said, draw a doctor, draw a scientist, and how we're clapping ourselves on the back, because 28% of children now draw women. Uh, not men, and we're like, oh, look at us go. I think there was also a little bit of a comment on not focusing on the private life of men in power. Mm. Uh, I think it was, I think they were talking about Henry VIII, and they were saying, there was some some male historian had basically said, why is everyone focusing on his sordid personal life and the fact that he killed half his wives? We should be focusing on, you know, the political things that he had done in his life. And it just kind of brought to mind this um, hypocrisy, basically. Yeah. Just think back to, so for those of you who don't know, I'm from Slovakia. And a few years ago, we voted in our first female president. And throughout her campaign, when she was campaigning, every single article that I read about her in some way commented on her personal life every single one and they all pointed out the fact that she was a single divorced mother of two yeah who cares (laughs) it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah and i mean if you look at the hillary clinton campaign for presidency and one or you know all of her private emails and how all of her stuff was brought out and uh yeah it it does i think when i was listening to it in isolation I wasn't getting that angry about anything. But now that I'm talking to you, I am like, yes, this is ridiculous. And, like, ironically, um, one of the parks near where Will's parents live is where Henry VIII had his deer lodge. So he used to go there for hunting. And I was walking the dog there last week while I was listening to this. And um, Catherine of Aragon, that's where she sort of lived and there's a big cross up on the hill and a large part of the town that it's in is named after her and it's got all these Spanish influences because that's where she was from. And I was like, I mean, how can you... You can't ignore somebody's, like... You can't just say, okay, cool, well, their non-political behaviour 
is irrelevant to who they are as a person. Uh, so then, I suppose after the introduction, she breaks down the book into, is it seven or eight sections? I'm not sure. And then each section is broken down further into two or three chapters. I, th- I feel like we should do it in parts rather than chapters, otherwise we're going to be here for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, go ahead. So Yeah, so the first part was daily life and that sort of set up the how women behave on a or how people behave on a day-to-day basis and it was largely looking at sort of transport and paid work and well no like work I suppose it set up the idea that women are the major proportion of unpaid carers so while men spend a lot of their day at work and then go home and have I think one of the stats that I remember off the top of my head was four hours of leisure time if you compare a woman who is in the same job doing the same thing she will have maybe 30 30 minutes of leisure time because when she gets home she might look after the children or do clean the house or you know or even her commute is much longer because she has got caring responsibilities that a man might not because in general women take part in the caring of for example the elderly so a woman might have to stop and see her mother or father on the way home or whatever and I think one of the things that really struck me about it was she spent a long time she spent too long in my mind (laughs) talking about transport structure and how when you look at the design of transport you either have it where everything goes to the centre of town or you have transport routes or links that are designed where they sort of do a zigzag or a grid structure across a city and men prefer it when it goes into the centre of town because then they can get from home to work much more easily whereas women prefer it where they can go from here to there to there because their journeys tend to be much more fragmented and I think it was something that I hadn't appreciated before. I have experienced that problem in Bristol. We have the radial system where all the buses go into the centre of town and then they go out again. And I have complained about it before. And it is what happens in the majority of cities is that most most transport leads to the centre. So if you've got something where you want to go to the outskirts slightly further along but on the same sort of distance from the city centre as you, you have to go into the city centre and then come back out again. And it was just, it's not the only example I can think of from this part of the book, but it's the one that affected me the most. Mm -hmm. Because once you break it down like that, it's so simple. It's such a simple explanation for why that's happened. And it is, in general, because men designed the transport routes, or they historically did, and now changing it is difficult yeah absolutely um it's the same here in dublin everything goes into the city center so if you want to go somewhere that's not in the city center you have to go via the city center anyway yeah see this was still at the beginning of the book so i was still really into it and i was i didn't think that it went on for too long i just found it really interesting because it's it's things that you like i said in the grand scheme of things minor inconveniences or like minor annoyances at least for for us but yeah, it did also make me think of things like you see, you know, city centers in some cities in the world, not everywhere, but there are places where, for example, the sidewalk is really, really small, so small that you can't push a pram. 
And it is these sorts of things that when you don't have to think about it, you don't even notice it. But when you do suddenly have to get off the bus and push the pram to get from A to B, and suddenly you can't because the sidewalk is too narrow and you have to go on the road or there's cars parked in on the sidewalk, all these things, yeah, they just add up. <laughs> I think the part, I, maybe this is why I thought it went on for too long, because she set out a number of different scenarios. So she was talking about the favelas in Brazil, yeah, where the illegal favelas that's, that spring up because there's no housing actually are perfect for people because they're a one solution, they're a one... Th- one solution fits all, where people have their workplaces and their families and their shops all in one place. And then you have the opposite, where they've created purpose-built housing for the same people, but now their jobs are miles across the city and the transport doesn't work out and there's purposefully, they've not designed homes that allow full families to fit in, so you can't have your children and your parents in the same home. And so your care responsibilities become bigger. And then what the women have ended up doing is they've started creating jobs within their homes. So they'll have like a nail salon in their flat, knowing that they may get evicted because that's against the terms of their lease. That is all stuff that I wouldn't have thought of hmm. because I it doesn't matter to me. I've got a car. Yeah. yeah. I don't have care responsibilities apart from myself and mm-hmm. my husband. But let's be honest, he's a fully capable adult person who can do his own stuff Hmm. (laughs) I think I don't want to just sit here and go problems 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 I I recognize that we are reviewing a book but because it's a non-fiction book it's also very real life Hmm. and I think that is something that I was thinking about throughout the time that I was reading it is what can we actually do about it yeah this is a big discussion that we were having with Andreas as well when I was ranting at him and he was like, okay, but so then, so then do something about it. And I was like, but what can I do? You know, I'm just one person. And I mean, I think the one thing, and I think she touched upon this in the book as well, is that because this is so widespread and it's so ingrained in our society, you basically need to have a complete overhaul of everything. First of all, the way that people think about these things. So You need to convince people that this is even an issue and there will be those who will simply think it's not an issue. Then you probably need to, once you've convinced them that this is a thing, okay, so what can you do about it? Well, probably vote in people who would act on this and try to make some kind of a change. But then, you know, even passing those changes, everybody would need to be on board. So it's just, it feels like an impossible task. And I know that we're you know, slowly chipping away at this and things are getting better. But how long is it going to take until... Yeah, I agree with you. And I and I was also thinking that. And actually, the first thing that you have to do is raise awareness of these issues in order to solve them. So for all of those who... And there are a lot of people who are criticising this book, saying, yeah, but what solutions does it present? I think it's the first step in a solution because you can't fix it until people realise it's a problem. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, it's not perfect, and I couldn't just give it to somebody who was a raging anti-feminist and go read this book, but it's a step in the right direction. And 
the world is better off in terms of change for having the book than it was when it didn't have the book. Mm. Because now we've got a handy reference of all the data. And more than that, the list of... of sources in the back of the book is enormous so Mm -hmm. it's not like it's all just hearsay yeah but yeah so just in terms of the awareness i think this this part of the book there were so many things that i was like yes this is a minor annoyance but it is a really relevant thing yeah and i think so obviously the numbers themselves were frustrating but on some level i think what frustrated me the most and maybe this I can refer back to what you were just talking about, the situation in Brazil, is, you know, someone might say, but there's just no money to redesign the whole transport system to better suit the people who were displaced. But then on the next page you have, but oh, but suddenly they found that money when they were preparing for the World Cup and for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. So the money is there. It's just who decides how is it spent yeah and ultimately most of the time it is still men and it's also it's not only about deciding how it's spent but it's about educating yourself about how it should be spent because Mm. you know i'm sure i don't believe that the designers of that purpose built accommodation purposefully set out to make women's lives harder they just didn't know that it would make it harder. Yeah. And that's because it's not, it's maybe not part of the process to actually, mm. you know, we look at it from outside and we go, well, they're living in unsafe conditions. It's not sanitary. They don't have proper electricity. We're going to give them a, this building, which is amazing, but we're not necessarily going to actually ask what they really need to think about as well as what we as a society such as good hygiene which i think nobody can say is a bad thing what is important yeah so i really appreciated then when at the same time she would use examples of places where they had taken these things Mm. into account and Mm -hmm. vienna seemed to be the number one city that she kept coming back to Mm. Uh, and i was really surprised i mean i've been to vienna and it's a beautiful city i but I hadn't really considered it, that this would be something that they had considered when they were designing it or designing new neighborhoods. But yeah, they would have, you know, women on the committee or they would go out, they would actually ask the public, what do you need? What do you Mm. want? And then design buildings or parks or public spaces around those needs. I think the impact of being a tourist is what you were sort of experiencing there. Mm. You know, I went to Sa- mm. I went to Sao Paulo some years ago now and and did some charity work and would have absolutely no idea about anything other than the issue that I went there to to help my with which was which was basically just trying to make sure that children receive a good education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, especially going as just a tourist, why would you even think about anything yeah like that? And I think that's that does definitely come in because, you know, you may have, you may think, okay, cool, as a government, we've got this problem, let's get in some international big shot who's got a reputation for fixing all of these things. And they may come in and they go, okay, cool, well, I've done all this stuff in Europe and that's really worked in Europe, so let's just transplant it here. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's, it's all about the communication and education really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was a running theme throughout was just that it's... It's it is just a lack of communication. Oh yes, I'm gonna use this as a really handy segue into the second part. Yeah, unless do it, do you it. have anything else to say. No, no. We so can move on. the 
the thing that really got to me about the workplace one was the Google example with the pregnant executive. Yes. So they had this high up lady who got pregnant and eventually threw all of her toys out the pram to really sink into the pun (laughs) because... Well, you know, she raised the issue that she was heavily pregnant. Google had massive car park because they have so many employees and she had to walk a really long way to get to the main building and she just couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. And so she brought it up and because she was an executive, everybody immediately went, yes, this is a problem. Let us fix it. And they put pregnant car parking spaces nearer to the building. And again, in terms of the real life-threatening situations that women handle on a day-to-day basis... Not an issue, really. But from the words of that woman, who I I don't remember who she exactly was, even she said that before she got pregnant, she would never have thought about that as being an issue before. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I think we all realise that not everyone is sexist, not everyone is out to get us. Yeah. It is a lot of the time just, yes, we are different, we lead different lives, and therefore Mm. it's understandable that the people in charge might not always know what suits us. Mm. So the really <laughs> the simple answer to that is just, well, then just ask. Like, Yeah, if you... it's just representation on panels or... Exactly, exactly. Surveys yeah, yeah. or... Yeah, and um, my supervisor had a similar uh, experience. I think she was telling me when she got pregnant for the first time, there was no real f- maternity framework within the department because... 95% of the academics were men and mm-hmm. the ones who were not who were female they were maybe older so they were no longer having children and so she suddenly rocked up as a you know early 30s and nobody really knew how to answer her questions about okay so how does maternity leave work you know who's going to take over my teaching when I have to be at home for six to nine months and yeah it's just because nobody had to deal with it for so yeah. long that these... nobody thought to ask yeah exactly so until she got pregnant and she had to deal with it and she started asking questions that's when people started realizing oh yeah we should probably do something about this yeah i think it i think that is really that question of have we actually asked everybody is what the whole book boils down to if you really mm-hmm. if you really think about it you know the modern The modern way of doing things may not necessarily be the best way of doing it, but we haven't built into our systems. Let's ask everybody and make sure that this is still the best way of doing whatever it is that we are doing. Yeah. Yeah. There was another thing which I've experienced uh, in this section, which was temperature in the office. Men basically run hotter, if we're going to use colloquial terms. And so they are much more comfortable in a colder room because they just have a higher metabolism and so what you get is offices that are the thermostat is set to five degrees too cold for women and therefore women sit there in coats and hats and scarves and wrist warmers while the men walk around in short sleeves and shorts where they're allowed to and that is a problem at my office when I go to the office which used to be daily and is now you know whenever whenever choose to basically my wardrobe i'm sitting here at home i'm in a i'm in a camisole and a jumper i've got the heating on and the heating is set to a temperature that i'm happy with when i go to the office i take like 50,000 layers it feels like and i also have a hot water bottle and a poncho that live at the office 
because I know that I'm going to be freezing when I'm trying to sit and concentrate on working. And I just thought that I was a cold person. And have you brought this up as an issue? So funnily enough, about three or four years ago, we did a survey or I did a survey of everybody in the office. And yes, most of the women came back saying they were too cold and most of the men came back saying that they were fine. Mm -hmm. and we took it to the estate's manager, who was the one who controlled the thermostat, who basically said, well, we lease this building from that company. We don't actually own it, and they're the ones who control the thermostat, so there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. And, you know, you really do pick your battles. To be quite honest with you, I think it's better to be too cold than to be too hot in a professional environment because I can put more layers on, whereas a man can't strip down more layers. <laughs> but but it's there's got to be a happy middle ground. Mm. And and what what is the case, as pointed out, was we've taken the default male position where men are comfortable at this temperature, therefore that's the temperature that the majority of our officers are set to. We had a similar problem in our lab, but to be honest, I think that was just a general building problem. There was just no heating in the lab. Like, there were physically no radiators in the lab, so we all had to deal with that <laughs> on some level. <laughs> I wonder if... I wonder how much of this is that the data gap exists, not because people aren't raising... People aren't asking the question, but because people are thinking that it's not important enough to raise as an issue. Because... As in the example I've just given, we went to the estate manager and they said, no, nah, there's nothing we can do about it. And we didn't push it. Mm. Whereas whereas maybe if we said, no, OK, this is really a big problem. Let's raise the temperature a couple of degrees and then at least we are in the middle ground. But be because there's not been enough research because you don't or not even research, but just information collected, I guess, which is the whole point of the book. Change won't happen mm. because let's be honest, there are bigger fish to fry. <laughs> Um, yeah. So th the parts that I found interesting in the workplace chapters were the sections when she was referring specifically to academia. And this is primarily because this is what I know. Um, I've only worked in academia. So these things were issues that I have experienced as well. Things like it being easier to get tenure in academia. So I think tenure is more of an American thing than it is uh, a British thing. But it basically means you get a permanent contract and you're set for life. And statistics like new policies that they've brought in about how to help female academics achieve tenure was the idea of accounting for the fact that they have to take time off for maternity leave. So they mm. brought in this policy where you would add one year per child for female, well, for all academics, actually, this was the thing. So they would just, as soon as you have a child, you would get like an extra year of reprieve, basically, saying that mm. if in that one year you didn't produce enough papers or bring in enough funding into the department, it doesn't matter because we understand you're at home with your child. And this was actually found to be more negative towards women and actually a positive thing for the male academics because, because they've given this to everyone, but the male academics were still working full time, even though they had a child because they weren't taking paternity leave. They were staying in the office. They were still doing the work. So getting that extra year for them was just like an easy bonus. And it just fast-tracked their careers more so than it was supposed to. Because it was supposed to help mm. the female academics. But that's not what yeah. was happening. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, 
this is one of the things that Will and I have a bit of a long-standing, we're going to discover what it means at some point, but there is no pay gap between us. We are in that strange position where we earn exactly the same. And therefore, when it does come to having children, I'm in the position where I've got the better career prospects because of my qualification and therefore I should be the higher earner but realistically I won't be because for whatever reason I'm more likely to be the one who takes maternity leave or parental leave as we now Mm. call it in the UK and I have a problem with that because obviously I do but even more than just the fact that I'm a woman the hardest thing that I've ever done to this point in my life is the second qualification that I achieved in order to become an accountant and the thought of giving that up in order to have children is something that really causes me a lot of anxiety and stress because I put so much into getting it why would I throw that away just for the sake of having children but then equally I really want to have children and I don't want to hire a nanny because I'm too busy being an accountant and I want to spend time with my children when they grow up and how much of that is biological and how much of that is, ugh, God, I, I don't even know, you know, societal expectations. It's impossible to say, but the fact is that that is what I want. But it's still a choice that I'm making and I'm being forced to make that choice. Whereas I think the last time Will and I had that discussion, he was saying, but you that is a choice that you are making. But it's such a shit position, excuse my language, to be in, where you go, okay, cool, so my choice is either pay somebody else to bring my children up for me and don't have that relationship that I want with my children or have a high-flying career mm. because I cannot have both. Yeah, I... I hear you. And yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. And one could argue that, again, one way to circumvent this is to increase the amount of time that men can take off from work because mm. this would help so much and yeah. it would make things a little bit more fair. And I can guarantee you that probably the vast majority of men wish that they could stay at home yeah as well for sure yeah so I've there's a there's a guy at my work who is taking parental leave this year Uh, I think he's already started even and the child is six months old now so he's not wholly reliant on his mother for breast milk so the mother's done six months and the father's going to do six months by the way I'm going to caveat this all with I know that being in the UK we are in an incredibly privileged position compared to for example America where maternity leave is just unspeakable I can't and there's even. no yeah I just it's sort your lives out America it's ridiculous um but yeah so he has taken this shared parental leave and all of the men at my company almost without exception there are a couple that I can think of who are like yeah he's doing a great thing are judging him and thinking that he's exploiting the system and they're not going okay this bloke wants to spend time with his firstborn child they're going well he just wants to avoid work because he's doing it over year end and you know why wouldn't I want to take January off because that's the worst time of the year for us so yeah he's been really clever here like as if he's actually taking time off. As if he's just going to sit at home yeah, twiddling exactly. his thumbs doing nothing. Like, yeah. Oh my god, just sitting there watching the football with baby sat next to him. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what sex the baby is, but ah, oh, yeah, it it is just it 
I think there is such a stigma. Mm. It's not only offering it, it's actually appreciating that it's not just leave. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe we should just even name it something else. It's not maternity leave. Like, yeah. Or, you know, you're not on holiday. Yeah. You're not actually, you're not taking time off work. You're taking time yeah. off paid work. Mm. But you're still mm -hmm. working full time. Even just call it unpaid time more. off. It's just... Um. Eh, anyway, we don't yeah. But yeah. Um, and then one more really thing angry. that I wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> one more thing about the, the academia was this idea about bringing in the student satisfaction surveys as a way of measuring um, the level of education in, in higher education. Oh my God. Suffice it to say, again, this unfortunately, statistically, is a negative thing for the female academics because it would appear that students, whether they be male or female, I mean, I'm sure that there are also some women out there who do this, are more likely to judge a female academic harshly for doing the same things as a male academic than they would be mm. the male academic. So things as being really smart, um, being strict, you know, lacking what they perceive to be empathy towards the students, all of these are seen as negative things when it's done by a female academic. If it's done by a male academic, then that man is just really good at his job. You know, this is what you expect. He's a genius. You wouldn't expect mm. him to be... Um, yeah emotional in any way mm. and so uh, yeah you just get these surveys that are so negative towards the female academics and i don't know if you do you remember this from when we were at uni because i think we were one of the first years when they started bringing in these student satisfaction surveys mm, i don't remember the student satisfaction survey at all But I'm also think, trying to think back on our professors, and I, I much preferred the female professors. On the whole, there were a couple of male professors who I, were awesome, mm. but I'm struggling to remember, bearing in mind it was 10 years ago. <laughs> If only um, 10 years ago. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that part. <laughs> Uh, I'm struggling to think of a female professor that I didn't like mm. or that I didn't thought I was getting an adequate education from, whereas there are definitely some, I'm looking at the maths and statistics and computing and those sorts of typically male regions where I've learned more from a textbook than I did from the actual lecturer. Mm. Yeah, I was more referring to the fact that there were some male students in our year, in our cohort, who were very negative towards the women in a very sexist and misogynistic way. Mm, I don't remember that at all. So um, I just... Yeah, yeah, I think I was probably quite obliv oblivious to it all. <laughs> I mean, on some level, I think so was I, but there was just some things that you can't ignore hearing in the computer room, you know? Mm. Yeah, so it's just these things, you know, like, taking into account appearance when what does appearance even matter but like these are the sorts yeah. of things that um women are judged on very harshly whereas mm -hmm. it doesn't make any difference 
if it's mm. a man in the same position, for example. Yeah, and you also just sort of know it implicitly. Like, I know that if I were to turn up to work wearing a short skirt or something that I had put on because I was too hot, short skirt's perhaps not the best example, but like a strap top, I wear strap tops all the time because I get too hot, that might be seen as being overtly sexual. Whereas if a man wears shorts to my work, he is celebrated for wearing shorts because you're not supposed to it's against the uniform policy and yes mate you do that you know it's not like oh well you're just showing off all your legs for the ladies you know (laughs) all your legs (laughs) (laughs) I don't know yeah I I it's such a difficult thing to tackle because Mm. you are trying it's got to start from day one you have to start teaching equality from the moment that a child is born. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, maybe, maybe not the first three months. I don't know when sure. it, it maybe will start affecting behaviour. But, <laughs> but yeah. But, you know, from the moment at which the differences between the two are being, or, or maybe not between the two, but just between identities are being recognised, that's when you have got to just start going, everybody's equal, doesn't matter what mm. happens... Your opinion is just as valid as the person sitting next to you. Yeah. And I think she didn't quite talk about this in the book, actually, but I do remember reading um, some magazine that was also about women's issues. And they were saying that even as young as two or three years old, children already start having these predefined notions of gender and gender roles in society. So just the fact that you have gendered toys you know, Barbies are for girls, trucks are for boys, pink girls is for pink. boys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, children pick up on this and this is, mm. it just becomes taught behavior from such a young age. Yeah. There's actually another really good book, um, which is by Robert Webb, who's a comedian in the UK, mm-hmm. Yeah, called How Not, How Not to Be a Boy. Yeah. And one of my f- colleagues was pregnant and she said to me that she was reading it because it's apparently really good for teaching you how to stop introducing all those biases first thing and and it and it is basically how he wrote about how he was taught all these things as a very young child and you don't need to do that you know this is how you don't behave as a boy essentially Mm -hmm. and I've literally just had a look at the front page of this book and he is one of the cited reviewers on the front page it's hugely readable Robert Webb Um, wonderful but yeah it's 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 a it's a really interesting you know use I think you're gonna have to tackle it from both ends you're gonna have to try educate the people who've already grown up in that normative space and you're gonna tackle the people who are now bringing up children and hope and pray that they are trying to do it in a way that is as unbiased as possible and they're not going well that's that is an issue but it's not going to affect my children and therefore I don't need to think about it Mm -hmm. because you have to physically make the effort in order to stop it just becoming part of the unconscious bias and also, you know, the people who are teaching our children. Yeah. Because um, that's another thing. The fact that we learn mostly about men 
men's achievements throughout history, which, mm. I mean, it's like this never-ending loop, right? Because mm. things have been mostly done by men because of the role that women had in society, then of course, statistically, probably there are just more achievements in science or the arts, but that's not because men are necessarily better than us. It's just that they've had more opportunities than we've had. Mm. Um, and I mean, one of the clear examples was, oh, see, and now I'm going to fall on my own sword because I don't remember her name, but um, the female scientist who discovered DNA, like the structure of DNA. Rosalind, uh, yeah, oh, I don't remember her surname. Yeah, exactly. Uh, whereas Watson and Crick got it off the bat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm so sorry. I've fallen on my this hill that I was going to die on. I have died on it because I know, but can't it's, even name it. Her. It is such it's such an important example because Rosalind Franklin. If I said to you who was Rosalind Franklin, you would know who it was, but you wouldn't. You can't remember her name off the top of your mm. head. Yeah, and like just you know required reading that we had to read in school. How much mm. of that was written by women? Like I can think of. I can maybe... remember. Carol Ann Duffy, who was a poet, and the rest of it was all men. No, 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 that's that's a lie. We did To Kill a Mockingbird as well. Yep, exactly. To Kill a Mockingbird, that's a classic, so that we did that as well. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I'm struggling. Yeah, it is. I, I think it, it does. It really has to start... Oh, God. I think it's such an impossible topic. Not to say that you can't tackle it, but just to know where to start. Because, again... You know, to use the example of our cleaner, and I realise that this makes me sound like the biggest entitled loser on the planet, because here I am going, oh, I'm one of the higher earners compared to average, and I hire my cleaner, and Will and I were talking about what does £15 mean to us, which is what she earns every week. Um, She comes for, for an hour and she earns £15, and... If, for whatever reason, we cancel, we have to make sure that we pay her that £15 because she has come to rely on that as part of her weekly income. Whereas to us, £15 is like, you know, we might we might buy enough food to make one meal compared to the numerous people who that is half their weekly budget for food, you know. Um, and... All of that is to just really emphasise the point that here I am spouting on about I need to make sure that I teach my children the real fundamentals of gender equality and this, that and the other. And I'm in a really, really fortunate position where that is just something that I can do because I have so much less life-threatening stress on me because I'm in a privileged position and it is really on people like us who are, we're not super rich, and we are still working hard to make our own living, but we're also, we make up the majority of the people probably who, I don't have any numbers to back this up, but we think about these things and, you know, we really care about these issues because we are on the borderline of, if I were to lose my job, then suddenly we'd be catapulted straight into the same position where I would be grateful to be receiving £15 a week. Mm. And so we're much more likely to take these things seriously. Whereas somebody who earns thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds every week doesn't care. They Mm. just don't care. And that's the majority of the people who put the policy in place and who run the newspapers and who decide what's news. 
Yeah, what you've just said is actually a great segue into the next section because the next section was about design. And I have written here, it's she's talking about cook stoves, basically. And um, oh my God, yeah. Bringing in new technologies or like um, safer cook stoves uh, to African women and also Asian women. And I have here written down, made me aware of my privilege to never have had to worry about such things because the, the premise is basically that women in many African and Asian countries obviously do most of the cooking at home and the stoves that they use are unsafe because they burn certain materials that give off fumes that have been found to cause cancer and other diseases. And uh, yeah, such, again, as, such as wood, essentially. Yeah. Yes. And again, women are the people who are suffering for this because we are the ones who do the majority of the cooking. And there were examples of, you know, these initiatives to bring in cleaner technology, but they didn't actually talk to the women who would be using the stoves and therefore they gave them stoves that they didn't know how to use. Nobody taught them how to use them. And so they weren't being used. And yeah, this was just like, yep, I have never had to worry about such a thing. And it just really makes you realize just how privileged we are to not have to concern ourselves about when are we going to be able to buy food? Can I cook my dinner in a safe way? Will I be warm at the end of the day? Yeah, and 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 it really does, you know, so much of that, the design part of the book was, well, your iPhone doesn't fit into your pocket and therefore your tracking of your steps doesn't work because they just assume that everybody's going to stick their phone in their pocket, whereas they already know that women are going to put their phones in their handbags. And then you're going, okay, cool, but there are women sitting in huts, burning smoky biomass fuels that are literally dying because yeah. uh, I think one of the other ones was they'd not taken into account cultural differences, so they provided these stoves that were perfect, but they assumed that the men would be able, or they assumed that the maintenance would be able to be done at home, and culturally the men did the maintenance, and the men didn't think that the maintenance of the stove was that important, and therefore once they broke, they just reverted back to their fire. Yeah, but this is this was also the part where it started... The statistics started to be a bit too much. So yeah, we were saying I agree at the beginning. You. Suddenly, it was it was just so many numbers, and it it started to become a bit meaningless. Which is why I really appreciated when she would then bring up real life examples. You know, just like focus on one woman, even by name. You know, what happened to her, and what was the what were the consequences? For example, the the one that really made me think. Made sort of swung me back into the whole. Well, this is the whole hysterical woman thing. Like making a, making a, a mountain out of a molehill. She talked about the Swedish man who, the six foot man who, when his arm was outstretched, that was what they took to be the height of a top cupboard. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I can't. I think it might have actually been in the afterword, but maybe it fits quite well in here. And this is a problem that Will and I have. Will is slightly, I think he's six foot two, I'm not 100% sure, and I'm 5'3", so there's a substantial height difference. And we had to buy a stool the other week because I can't fit the top, I can't reach the top cupboard. But we bought the extra tall kitchen because we needed storage space. We mm. live in a flat and we need as much storage space as we can get. 
And so maybe sometimes those decisions are not only about the default male. And also I remember buying an iPhone years ago when they had just started introducing the massive, massive screens. I bought the biggest one that I could because I was really enamoured with Instagram and I really loved having big pictures, you know. Mm -hmm. It wasn't only about will it fit into my pocket because I didn't really care. And if it didn't track my steps properly, I really wasn't that bothered. If I was that bothered about it, I would have bought a pedometer because let's be honest, I don't need to know my steps that exactly. And if I do, the iPhone's probably not the best Mm. vehicle for it. Yeah, but even that pedometer probably wouldn't have tracked your steps as well as it would have for Well, that's man. true. That is true. <laughs> yes, you are not wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think you're you're right. Like this is where I started losing it a little bit because the num the sheer volume of numbers and things started coming in that I started being like you need to you need to add in mitigations to the arguments that could be made that you're making something that is not a gendered problem a gendered problem such as yes I do need more storage in my flat and they're not going to build me a five foot four flat that I can literally just fit into because of my height where I can reach everything and therefore I am going to yeah I don't know I think this is I was bought into it until this point and then it started losing me a lot more yeah and I do wonder if this is partly because we both read it so quickly. It could be. But it could also be, you know, as you've just said, some things are just... I mean, it's all important. Yes, we should all strive to be better. But some things are more important than others. And maybe this section, especially about the phones, I hadn't really considered it before. I mean, I I have been annoyed by the sheer size of the phones it just never occurred to me that this could be a gendered issue. I thought that maybe, okay, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't like big phones. And evidently I'm in the minority because they're everywhere. But I am in the market for a new phone right now. And I am thinking very hard about what phone can I actually get and be able to use and be able to take with me safely. You know, what actually fits in my handbag because it's not going to go in a pocket that doesn't exist. It's going to go in a handbag and some of my handbags weren't big enough for that either. But yeah, so this was a bit of a annoyance section. Yeah, I think it uh, it led quite nicely into, I haven't done this deliberately, but I am going to do it because I'm also quite aware that we've been talking for a, a long time already. <laughs> um, it segued quite nicely into the the medical stuff where I think in South Africa they had made an app for the women or the carers who were going into the communities that had HIV, AIDS, really prevalent, and they'd they'd developed this app that really allowed them to track everything and to make sure that they knew what was going on with each individual patient. And they had really, really, really considered everything about the app. It was 100% fit for purpose. And even the health workers were on board with it. And then they suddenly discovered that it wasn't actually being used because in order to keep their valuables safe, the women were putting their stuff into their underwear, their valuables, so that if they got robbed, it was much harder to find, and their phones didn't fit into their bras, and therefore they just weren't taking their phones with them. Mm-hmm. And so, as brilliant as the app was, it was completely irrelevant because the phone wasn't on the woman at the time, because they were so scared of getting robbed and whatnot in the communities. 
So the medicine. Yeah. This was where I lost it. Yeah. I, I couldn't. I just couldn't deal with it for a number of reasons. Some of them own personal experience. Others mm. just the general, you know, as we've been saying, some things are minor annoyances, but this is people's lives that are yeah, this is, mm-hmm. at stake. This is real stuff. She it's should not... have lived with, she should have led with this so. chapter. Maybe, yeah. Or this part. Yeah. Or maybe she herself realized that she was losing people, so she brought it in near the yeah, end as maybe. a way to reinvigorate the reader. But um, just the general frustration of the fact that women aren't being included in medical trials, therefore we don't know if medicine actually works on them the way that it's supposed to. You know, all the medicines that we could have that have been scrapped because they were found to have no effect on men, but actually they probably would have had some effect on women's health. Maternal mortality was very triggering for me and just so upsetting to think that we live in 2021 but women are still dying every day because there is a lack of data like hundreds of millions of women give birth every day and yet the things like there's just no there's just nothing to but but more than that it's not even that there's not the data but but the symptoms that women experience are dismissed because men don't experience those symptoms yeah exactly yeah yeah i found this triggering also and i've got far fewer medical nonsense things but the way that it approached mental health as well, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's just frustrating and really sad because when you talk to other women, we understand. Like, you tell me that something happened to you and I believe you because something similar has mm. happened to me. Yeah. But sometimes if you bring this up with men, they just can't imagine that something like mm. this would happen and therefore... Some of them just don't believe you. Mm. And that's just really sad. I think one of the ones, one of the, I think it was, there was a woman with endometriosis where cells that make up the lining of your womb grow in other parts of the body. And therefore, when you have your monthly cycle during your menstruation, you have agonizing pain. And she was literally discharged from hospital because she was making it up it couldn't there was nothing wrong with her it couldn't be possible that there was yeah yeah just take a painkiller yeah and what dysmenorrhea is the other i think it's much more common where you just have excruciating period pain and when i was 13 14 ish i was prescribed salt pills essentially because i was being sent home from school because I was so sick. And it was not the doctor's fault. It's just not only is there not the data, there's not the research because it's not considered important enough mm. yeah. for the research to be done. Yeah. I think this was the this chapter... I mean, to be honest, I think this chapter could have been the whole book. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And it may have had more impact... I've got some thoughts on that, which we can discuss, hopefully not too much later, but later. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, this is where the education and the really raising awareness of the data gap as a whole is so important. Because if we said to any of our science friends, 
this is a problem, they would be mortified to think that it was a problem. You'd hope so. (laughs) Well, you would hope so. I'm trying to think, like, if we... When we were doing our um, fourth year of our undergraduate degrees, which is the highest of my academic journey, I realise it's not for you, but, you know, we had two blokes who were doing a similar track with us. If we had said to them, are you purposefully not including women in your research or in what you're thinking about or in your... They would have been horrified. They would have been you know, it's it's not them that are deliberately going. This It's just so inbuilt into the culture of what we are doing that it's finding the disruptor to, to make people in general sit back and go, hmm, we probably need to find a different way to start doing this. And I think one of the, the strongest parts of this chapter was that not only does the data exist, but we've still not even started gathering it. In five years' time, we could have had five years' worth of data, mm-hmm. which is better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, for me, the most frustrating part of this chapter was the fact that, of course, there are researchers out there who want to work on these things and who are trying to get the funding, but they're being shut down. Yeah. And they're not being given them because, as you said, it's not seen as big enough of an issue. Yeah. Let's focus on something else. And it's yeah. just... Yeah. Because, like, at the end of the day, what do you mean it's not big enough of an issue? Like, half the world population is women. Is you know. So even if it's, even if you consider it in terms of numbers of like, okay, where am I going to, what am I going to fund that's going to make me money back? Like, hundreds of millions of women could benefit from this. They, they will be those people who will buy that medication or use that software or whatever. So mm. why are people not investing in it? This is what I don't understand. You know, if it's just a money thing, why are you shutting out half of your potential customer base? And I think it's also, you know, if you think about, okay, let's go back to the period pain thing for a minute. Mm. So if you said to, if Boris Johnson's mother, for example, had experienced endometriosis or any of those really, really debilitating period pain moments in her lifetime... And Boris Johnson really understood exactly what she was going through during those moments. He wouldn't dismiss it because she's his mother and he is biologically and presumably culturally and socially just loves her. She's his mother. He considers her to be the pinnacle of womanhood because she is his mother. Da-da-da-da-da. But... She would never have said to him, my period pain was so terrible that once a month for three days I had to sit in a hot bath or I ended up throwing up or I was crying or feeling, why is this happening to me? It's so unfair. Why do women have to go through this and men don't? Because it is just an accepted thing that women have terrible period pain and we just have to put up with it. It's not something that anybody goes, oh, well... We've just not done the research, so there could be a solution to it, but we don't know if there is because we've never considered it an important enough thing. But if somebody were to get through to him in a way that said, okay, your wife or your mother or any other woman who is personally close to you has had this horrific thing happening to them every single month, their entire life, while they are menstruating, 
you can guarantee that he would have done something about it or something else would have happened to pay more attention to this one issue. But it's also something that we are conditioned not to talk about. Like, if I'm feeling so sick that I've got to stop working because I've got really bad period pain, I'll say to my boss, who is a man, um, I'm not feeling very well, it's just that time of the month, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to call it a day for today and I'll be back tomorrow, everything will be fine. Because you, you can't say exactly what's happening because it's just not culturally appropriate. Mm. They're just not aware... And okay, I'm talking about, I'm only talking about periods because it's really the only thing that I have enough experience of. There's so many other things that, that in the case of the woman who had IBS, but it was affecting her differently as a woman to how they would expect it to present as a man that they just told her she was being, she was imagining things and it couldn't possibly be happening. But you can't say, well, you know, something wrong with my poo because you don't do that. It's not something that we do as a culture. And so it's much easier to, for it to just get dismissed and not treated as a real problem mm. because you're not supposed to talk about it. But all the research that's been done has been done on men and therefore we don't actually know what is being presented because we don't know. Mm. I Yeah, this I think this this part of the book should have been the book <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Do you have much in particular to say about the next two parts that we haven't already covered? Not really. Because it's, I mean, it's, again, it's all important issues. It's all mm. horrible things, some of which I know about, other things that I don't know about. Mm. But apart from saying that they're awful and I can't believe this is still happening in 2021, yeah. I don't really know what else there is to say. Yeah. So a lot of it is about politics and disaster, a approaches to when disasters happen. And we've mentioned a few of them already it was the driest part of the book, but also a valuable part of the book, and I think worth reading. Yeah, and again, things that, you know, thank goodness you and I have never had to deal with. Yeah. And let's hope that we never have to deal with it, because they were hard. Like, it was it was horrific stuff that she talked about in the last section of the book, especially with the disaster relief and what happens to women who are already... I, yeah, I think one of the things that is was really obvious to us being in the middle of a pandemic was she talked about the Ebola pandemic and how that or it was an epidemic wasn't it and it affected women differently to men and especially because the women were the caregivers and also the people who prepared the bodies once they had died prepared them for burial and that has led to further complications as well as the fact that the Ebola virus persists in men's sperm for up to six months beyond contracting the virus but women are not in a position of power to enforce the use of condoms all of that you could really tell that this book had been written before coronavirus and I was thinking I would really like in 10 years time to see an update to this book including coronavirus yeah we were saying the same with Andreas like not even in terms of corona but just to see okay she's put it out there the numbers are there we are all aware that it's an issue what's being done about it so mm. if she were to write this book in 10 15 years would the numbers be different and would they be better i think that would be really interesting to see really interesting and i think in terms of the politics it seemed to me that we were going backwards <laughs> 
I think in 10 to 15 years' time, we might find that things were not better and they were actually worse. I think the other thing that's really interesting was the disaggregation of data. For a lot of these things, the data could exist, except that it wasn't recorded adequately. And thus, in 10 years' time, we may have coronavirus figures, but we wouldn't necessarily know the difference between the two biological sexes because we just didn't record what was going on. I mean, I don't know. I think they are, at least here in Ireland... Most days they will say what well, the proportion of men or women who have tested positive, for example. Yeah, we don't get that here. We just get the oh. total case numbers and it's whether or not they are actually recording it. Okay. I think a lot of that was has been pointed out throughout the book as being the data just hasn't been recorded. So although they are taking data, they're not necessarily disaggregating it. Mm. Mm-hmm. So do you have anything else to say that we've not already said. No. I have one request for Caroline Criado Perez or whoever may be listening to this or has any clout or anything. I really think this needs to be a documentary series on the TV. Mm-hmm. I think the information that is contained within it is so important that the book is not the right vehicle for the information mm-hmm. because it's not accessible to people who don't find it enjoyable to just read through a list of facts and figures and then conclusions. I think it would make a really nice six or seven part series where you introduce the data and you can illustrate it and you can get other people's opinions presented so that it comes across as much less biased. Mm -hmm. I spent most of the time that I was thinking about it, thinking a book isn't the right format for this, and I really would love to see something else, but what would I like to see? And I think I've settled on a documentary series. Yeah, I think that's probably the most accessible as well. Like, it's probably going to also reach the most people. Yeah. Like a Netflix miniseries or something. Yeah, I think that would be... Yeah, I don't know. I think the... What happens next is the big question, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Now that the book has been written, what happens to it and what happens to the information and what do we do about it? Yeah. And I think also, okay, again, I'm speaking here from a white heterosexual woman. So who I, you know, who is a woman and is female. So maybe I'm not in the position to be saying this, but I would also say that for the people who might not be picking up this book because it doesn't include transgender people. I would urge them to pick it up anyway. Mm. I think it is important Mm. information. Even if we fully support that, yes, she should have probably spoken about those issues as well. And I mean, for all we know, maybe she's writing a book about those issues. I agree with you. You have to start somewhere. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think once this becomes part of accepted canon, it can be developed upon... I mean, canon in terms of a cultural sense, you know, once something like this becomes the, well, you can just refer to, oh, Invisible Woman, you know, do you remember that book? And now we can apply it to the trans, but you've got to start somewhere. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it might also be fault with us. So if there are other books that have been published that Lucia and I just don't know about, let us know what they are. Yeah, I mean, there probably are. I mean, not not probably. For sure there are. I mean, if you go to any bookstore nowadays, you will find a section about women's studies or women's issues, gender issues. And there are so many books out there that I am peripherally maybe aware of, but because it is such heavy topics, 
and it can be really upsetting. It's not necessarily the first thing that I would reach for. Mm. And and how do you scrape the tip of an iceberg as well? You know, you've sort of got there. I think it's one of the things the podcast is really good for is that we are challenging each other to read stuff that we would never normally pick up. Mm. So thank you for picking this book. You're welcome. I thank myself as well. It was, you know, it was interesting. And I think I'm really, really glad that we've discussed it because I think if we hadn't had the last two hours, I would have closed it and potentially never really thought of it again. Mm -hmm. I like, I would have thought of it, but it wouldn't be, I wouldn't have given it as much thought as I've given it in the last couple of hours. Yeah, same. And I hope that our friend whom we asked to read it does one day read it and lets us know what he thinks. I think it's something that I will want to revisit in the future because I do intend to make sure that some of my family members read it. They may not be male, I don't know. It's a weird thing because the females in my family are the readers and actually the males, although they enjoy reading, absolutely don't read at the rate that all of us females do. Hello, this is editor Lucia just jumping in to say that in the end, on the day that we were going to post this episode... Our friend got back to us saying that he had started reading Invisible Women, and he sent us some of his thoughts. So this is our friend Patrick. He works in academia, and here are his impressions so far. The author makes her point very well. The data is mostly well-picked, reliable, sound, and interesting, but I am very surprised by how little new content there is, so far anyway. This was five chapters in. I was expecting to discover all sorts of new things, ideas, or facts about gendered issues, but there isn't anything I didn't already know. Or rather, there is, but it's mostly little minutiae or examples to support the bigger message, which is well established. For example, I didn't know about the gendered consequences of snowplowing policy, but that urban design is entrenched with gendered issues is well established and might have been a novel idea a decade ago or more. I don't need a book to tell me that if you design based on current and patchy data, you can only address needs that are already catered for, rather than the needs for which there is no solution. The next two chapters were a little bit different. Here I have learned new important things. Again, only the details were new, but these were important details that will affect my work behavior. I always checked my job adverts for gender-biased terminology, but I have never done that for letters of recommendation. I will start doing that now. Also, some of the bias on meritocratic assessment criteria was new to me. So overall, it is very well written, it fits the job well, and I am learning new interesting things, even if minor. So thank you again, Patrick, for sending us these thoughts. And uh, listeners, if you agree or disagree with this, please do let us know. There was one more thing that I wanted to sort of say, which is that the bit about the periods... And the fact that women don't necessarily have access to sanitary products made me really sort of be like, you know, I've been to service stations and they've got a sign on the back of the toilet door that is for £3 a month, you can donate sanitary products so that XYZ can go to school. And I've decided to look into doing that. I was going to just do it earlier and then the charities that came up, I decided I needed to read their audit reports and just make sure that we were, you know, 100% sure that the funds were going to the right place. But I think I've sort of, it's inspired me to be like, okay, 
I do have my own problems and I've got all of this other stuff going on, but I can definitely contribute at least £3 a month to something that, if I weren't in my privileged position, would be a real big issue for me. And I hope I hope that the book inspires other people to do, you know, none of us can tackle the big issue in isolation, but we can mm-hmm. all take small steps towards what will eventually resolve some of the issue, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know it makes sense. On that note, we've been saying with Andreas that we might reach out to some researchers here in oh. Dublin who are working on some women's health and specifically pregnancy awesome issues just to see if they need any any number crunchers or anything yeah oh that's awesome but that's all for the future and speaking of the future i will totally fully segue unless you have anything else you want to do it no i've been trying to i've been calling up the recording schedule so that i can try get the segue done because we have been talking for a long time (laughs) we have this is going to be our longest episode (laughs) oh my goodness yeah and you have to yeah if you need help uh if you need help editing let me know (laughs) That's fine, that's fine. (laughs) But yes, so next time we will be hopefully talking about lighter issues than women's issues uh, because we are delving back into fiction and, if I'm not mistaken, into fantasy. Mm -hmm. And we are going to be reading The House in the Cerulean Sea by TJ Klune. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Me too. I've heard very good things. Excellent. Yeah, me too. And I'm I'm looking forward to some light, <laughs> some light literature after this. I'm not sure how light it's going to be because you know, knowing us, it's probably not. <laughs> Death, rape, murder, don't know, drug use, alcoholism. <laughs> yeah, all the all those things. <laughs> oh dearie me. Yeah. So I look forward to that episode and. Uh... I will talk to you in a week. Yeah, speak to you in a week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.